They say it got smart. A new order of intelligence. Then it saw all people as a threat, not just the ones on the other side. It decided our fate in a microsecond. Extermination. AI. You mean artificial intelligence? A singular consciousness that spawned an entire race of machines. To ensure your future, some freedoms must be surrendered. We robots will ensure mankind's continued existence. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me, and I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Welcome to Omnia, the podcast series on all things pen arts and sciences. In this episode, we explore the fact, fiction, and future of artificial intelligence in the military. Should we fear the development of weapons that think? Or are these fears based more on science fiction than fact? We speak with Michael Horowitz, Associate Professor of Political Science and the Associate Director of Penn's Perry World House. Horowitz has worked for the Department of Defense as an International Affairs Fellow and has researched and written extensively on public attitudes towards the use of autonomous weapon systems. I mean, there's a pretty simple equation when you think about the, the role of artificial intelligence in the military and popular culture, which is if you take a machine, you give it a brain and you give it a gun, the first thing it decides it wants to do is destroy humanity. And I think that says a lot more about us in some ways than it probably does about the machines. I mean, from the the Matrix to the Terminator to the TV show Battlestar Galactica to 2001 A Space Odyssey, thinking machines with guns can seemingly do nothing else other than decide that humans are uh, are the threat. And, And this is a case where because this technological area is both so early and because developments are so uncertain, It's a place where I think popular culture actually plays a significant role in driving people's instincts. So on the one hand, I think that there's a a, a human instinct to want to be killed by by another person. It it somehow doesn't seem fair, after all, if uh, if a machine kills you, that there's uh, there's something less dignified almost about it. Uh, on the other hand, uh, humans have been uh, quite adept at figuring out uh, more and more novel ways to kill each other for, uh, for for hundreds of years. And you know, once you get beyond sort of Athens and Sparta, uh, if not before, uh, you know, killing from a distance is a is a regularity. And there are actually reasons to potentially think that machines, in some cases, might actually make better choices than people when uh, deciding uh, deciding who to kill or how to do it. So it's a complicated issue. Although we are far from the development of a killer robot, such as the Terminator, militaries around the world have already put in use types of computer-controlled weapons known as autonomous weapon systems. Horowitz explains. In the international security realm, the, the term of art that's often used to describe the application of artificial intelligence to military systems is autonomous weapon system or lethal autonomous weapon system. And you can think about a lethal autonomous weapon system as a system where a machine, rather than a person, is selecting and engaging a a target, whether that target would be a person or a a ship or a tank. And in a a broad sense, you know, these systems mostly don't exist. I mean, there is no Skynet, there is no Terminator, you don't really need to worry about that. But there are simple systems that exist today 
that based on that definition, arguably qualifies autonomous weapon systems. Uh, two uh, in particular. The first is uh, Israel has a, a cruise missile called the Harpy. Harpy operates autonomously, detecting, engaging, and destroying emitting enemy radars. Harpy is ground launched and navigates autonomously to and in the target area. So it, it is the, the cruise missile and the seeker on the cruise missile that's choosing the target based on, you know, very, very limited set of instructions. The second would be uh, the United States and about 30 other militaries around the world have uh, what are called uh, close-in weapon systems on many of their uh, ships and outside some of their military bases. Those close-in weapon systems are essentially enormous uh, Gatling guns or short-range missile systems that normally operate by having a person detect an incoming threat, say maybe a missile uh, or a tank, and then target the system against that threat. But those systems often have automatic modes, so that if the number of, say, missiles coming in, is, is there are too many missiles coming in for a person to individually target, you can flip on automatic mode and the computer will do that targeting and firing for you. So these close-in weapon systems have been been operated for over a generation without without controversy or anyone really noticing, uh, in part because they're rarely used in battle, and in part because they when they're used the the automatic mode is rarely used. But these are these are systems that in a in say a naval war would be vital for protecting the lives of uh, U.S. soldiers at sea. Uh, another system that one country at least is working on at the intersection of artificial intelligence and weapon systems is Singapore's SIGGER system. And that is a gun that basically sits on the South Korean side of the demilitarized zone. And there is allegedly, and there's a lot of uncertainty about this, a, a version of the system that is programmed to operate automatically such that if anybody crosses... Uh, into its range, it would it would automatically fire against them. Now, because it's the demilitarized zone, the only people that could possibly be there would be North Korean soldiers, and in the if North Korea invaded South Korea, so that might seem safe uh, in a way. But there's a lot of uncertainty about how exactly this piece of technology uh, works, and there there have actually been conflicting reports out of South Korea. Horowitz is currently researching public opposition towards the use of autonomous weapons by the military. He explains there is a long history of public resistance to the use of new weapon technology. You know, there are lots of weapon systems that are introduced and seem uh, very scary at first. And there's a lot of public opposition to when the submarine was introduced, it was thought of as cheating. When airdrop weapons were introduced, they were thought of as, as cheating. The Pope tried to ban the crossbow because it could penetrate the armor uh, of knights. And in all of those weapons were then, you know, normalized into militaries. And, and over time, you know, the public decided, hey, this is, this is okay. On the other hand, you have weapons such as uh, chemical and biological uh, weapons that, that people are always comfortable with, even when they're, they're used. And eventually, uh, publics around the world decide that they'd, they'd rather not have these kinds of weapon systems. That's the first thing. The, the second thing that I think is interesting when thinking about public attitudes and artificial intelligence is that the military is only one part of the equation. Artificial intelligence is more like the combustion engine. It's something that 
will underlie lots of different things in society, including military systems. And so from that perspective, I think that the public uh, awareness is likely to increase. And and in some ways, the the public's likely to become more accepting over time, simply because they're going to see uses of artificial intelligence in many areas of life. According to Horowitz, early surveys have shown younger generations as generally more accepting of autonomous weapons. A trend, he says, that should be taken with caution. The results I found about age and support for autonomy and weapon systems is still is still pretty tentative. There's a lot more work that needs to be done to nail down that relationship. But presuming that relationship is real, there there is certainly danger there in that it's a form of of outsourcing decision making. And you you never want to get to a situation where you have a generation of people that essentially just trust the machine completely and aren't making judgments themselves is then what happens if the machine makes a mistake? You know, think about the, the flash crash on Wall Street. Imagine the military version of that with military systems using artificial intelligence. That could be disastrous. But that's more likely if we don't use judgment in thinking about what is it that we want humans to be doing when it comes to the use of force. One of the more vocal groups working to preemptively ban fully autonomous weapons is the Campaign to Stop Killer Robots, an international coalition of organizations, academics, and activists. Horowitz discusses the campaign and its impact on the discussion of the militarization of artificial intelligence. The Campaign to Stop Killer Robots has been great at raising public awareness about some of the challenges that will be involved as militaries incorporate machine autonomy in lots of areas, including the the use of force. One problem, though, is that actually regulating weapon systems, as they, they would like to do, can be a lot more complicated than they'd like to imagine. The reason why regulation could be more complicated is that we're still not sure exactly how to define what an autonomous weapon is or what kind of human control over the use of force is necessary. Some people uh, in the campaign, for example, say that control, human control over the use of force needs to be meaningful. What does it mean for it to be meaningful? If a pilot gets a signal from a radar system that tells it that there's uh, an enemy you know, dozens of miles away, and they can't see that enemy, and they, and they press a button to fire a missile because of that radar signal, and then you know, that missile mid-flight turns on a seeker and locates the, you know, the enemy plane and, and hits it. I mean, how meaningful was that control by the person? They basically got an input from a computer, pressed a button because the computer essentially told it to, and then another computer found the, the enemy and hit it. We think, that, we think that today is meaningful human control. And that's okay. It probably is. But then, so then what does it mean for humans to not be in control? Skynet is one example, but that's an extreme. It's figuring out what real-world applications of artificial intelligence in the military context are like that I think is more challenging than the campaign to stop killer robots sometimes imagines. In October 2016, the White House issued a comprehensive report as part of a larger initiative to address the developing fields of artificial intelligence, including the military. Horowitz discusses this initiative. 
In the United States, I think the White House's Artificial Intelligence Initiative, which includes a series of roundtables around the country designed to spark conversations about uses of artificial intelligence in in the economy and in, in society writ large, I think that's a really good first step, actually, toward taking some of the mystery away and, and bringing our discussions of artificial intelligence closer to the scientific reality. I mean, the truth is that you know, public communication on science and technology issues is, is almost always challenging. I mean, think about discussions of climate change and climate science. The, the scientific community isn't always the best at making its voice uh, heard, and especially in this case where you have uh, so many differences of opinion. It's not surprising that the dominant viewpoints are the ones that are uh, A, easiest to explain, and B, involve the biggest bangs. I mean, military applications of artificial intelligence are inevitable. The question is how international organizations, uh, militaries, societies uh, manage the integration of artificial intelligence capabilities into militaries and make choices about what those applications should be. And there will be fear that goes along with that, but if we let that fear blind us to what is going on and what others are doing, we are likely to end up worse off than if we go into it with our eyes open and try to make mindful choices. This has been a presentation of Penn Arts and Sciences. Special thanks to Michael Horowitz from the Department of Political Science. To listen to previous episodes of the Omnia Podcast, visit our website or subscribe to the Omnia Podcast by Penn Arts and Sciences on iTunes.